This is Software Defined Survival, where we explore how software-defined systems are changing the business of AVIT. Today on Software Defined Survival. So we go to an elaborate process to build a functional prototype, which is still a fraction of the cost of building the actual app. And in the process of doing that, we always uncover change change some of the requirements because we realized that what we thought was going to work doesn't really work very well or doesn't engage the user properly or doesn't expose the right business context for the user so that they're going to use the app properly and then we change it and a prototype is dramatically less costly the product life cycle is you replace it at some point with some completely new system that, that that subsumes the old one because technology's changed. But you don't, but it doesn't just disappear unless you just don't want to continue to run your company. You stop marketing it, you stop developing it, and eventually your revenue's gonna fall off and your customers are gonna fall off and they'll go someplace else. Okay, if you've been listening to this podcast at all, you may have realized that I've been slacking off a bit lately. And that's because, well, it's been hard to find the time and I haven't, I didn't really realize how much value people were getting out of this podcast. And after speaking with a few of you recently and hearing about how helpful the interviews are, I decided that I have to find a way to make the time to publish every week, to find a way to release this podcast every week and really keep the momentum going. So I set up a Patreon page, and if you'd like to support this podcast, you could become a patron. There's a few different levels there, and for a few bucks a month, you could help us get back on track to releasing a new episode every week. And there'll be a few bonuses included for people who want to pledge a little bit more as a little thank you for your support. And you can find out more about the bonuses at patreon.com slash software defined survival. And of course, you could always help us out by subscribing in iTunes, leaving a comment and sharing the podcast with your friends. All right. On with the interview. Welcome to Software Defined Survival. My name is Patrick Murray and today's guests does not come from the audiovisual industry, but I really wanted to get an outside perspective on the way we handle software and really get some good ideas and just see where this conversation kind of takes us. So please welcome to the podcast, David Hirschfeld. David, welcome. Hi, and thank you, Patrick. Um, um, it's a great, it's great opportunity to just sit and chat with you. Yeah, we've spoken a few times already, and every conversation has left me with uh, some really great ideas and interesting perspectives. So to get started, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. So I've been a software developer and um, entrepreneur for the last 30 plus years. I uh, started with a, a little software comp- company that was for logistics and route distribution, and despite every effort on my part and my partner's part, it grew into 800 customers in 22 countries and some very large customers. We ended up selling that in 2000. But that was after uh, after I did a stint with Texas Instruments, and then I did consulting with Intel and Allied so- Signal and Motorola um, uh, just prior to that. So um, in the last 13 years, I started 13 years ago. I started a company, the current company, um, Techies, and 
we do spelled T-E-K-Y-Z, uh, kind of a play on words. And we do um, software development projects of all types for various types of clients. Um, some really interesting stuff as well um, that spans a lot of different industries. Um, and some of my products take me into the um, IoT uh, area, which is more similar to some of the things that you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The term IoT, AV people may kind of snicker a bit about it, but um, we've been doing networks of things for a long time. So if you take a group of devices that were never meant to talk to each other and create a little network, whether it's a TCP network or just a serial cable um, or an infrared, it's it's still a network of things. And the IoT just kind of introduces the internet, which does change the way the system behaves quite a lot, but in the end, it's basically routing messages between devices. Right, right. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, I don't see the Internet of Things as really any different than any other network, except now you have all these devices that are not dedicated computers along the way. They're computer-supported devices. So whether it's a data collection device or a... Um, uh, or an audiovisual device, or heating and air conditioning for your home, or for a you know a skyscraper, there and then devices that may sit in between there for managing the communication and data collection, but it's just part of a network, right? Exactly like you said. Yeah, it's it's funny you should mention heating and air conditioning because it's kind of a misnomer. AV pretty much. Uh, a large majority, I'm, I'm tempted to say all, but I'd say most for sure, most AV systems are integrated with at least a lighting system or a motor for the projection screen. And more often than not, security, heating, shades, all these different kind of building systems. So we've always been more than just audio visual. So when somebody comes to you with a new project, can you talk a little bit about, about the process? Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and people come to me with projects of all different types. Uh, in fact, I was at a, I was speaking yesterday at a, was yesterday, a Saturday at a, um, uh, an entrepreneur day long workshop where I was invited in to speak for 45 minutes on software startups. And there were 30 people in, because of the workshop. So there were 30 people in the room and, and the, they are all different levels of projects from uh, things dealing with tow trucks to products that deal with, and, and there was a lot of IOT related stuff and there's stuff with Fitbits to more, you know, human resources applications to all kinds of stuff. And, and some of those were existing businesses and some of them were ideas. Um, when, when I meet a customer for the first time, I'm never sure, or prospective customer, I'm never sure if they're going to be, uh, if they're going to have a napkin with six bullet points written on it, or if they're going to have a 50-page document with wireframes and they're heavily invested and have really been thinking through the whole thing. So I have to be pretty flexible in terms of what uh, uh, what I'm willing to how, how I consume the information that they give me and provide help. So the process typically is I try to understand the industry, the requirement, 
their knowledge of that particular industry because that makes such a big difference in terms of a potential success of a client knowledge of their customer as well as their market because those are two real different things uh, the all my clients who have been really successful as businesses well, not all of them but nine out of ten of them were came from the industry where the software that they wanted to build uh, and so they knew the customer already. They may, they thought they knew the market. In most cases, they didn't really understand the market well, but they knew the customer and they also knew the channels. And so they understand how to get their message out into that market because they were really familiar with it. Uh, uh, so, so I spend a lot of time learning the market. And when you've done this a lot of times for lots of different businesses, then uh, you get really good at taking things you've learned from other projects and starting to apply them more generally. So it's a fun, especially in the beginning, it's a really fun creative process. Once we understand the requirements, then we uh, dive into putting together a plan, identify the potential architectural issues and how we're going to evolve an architecture so that we can, and then we carve out an MVP, which is a minimal viable product, which is the smallest thing you can build that can be delivered to uh, clients to start to use, not with the purpose of generating income, but with the purpose of learning and listening and, and validating the concept. Uh, because most of the time, once you get that first product out, people will will undoubtedly tell you what they really want. That's a, a really interesting point. I want to circle back to that and dig deeper sure. into it. But mm -hmm. can we can we just go back a few steps? I have a question sure. about that that discovery process. Sure. Have you seen any are there any kind of recurring themes that you tend to see and do you have any go-to questions to really get at, you know, the heart of the matter what the app is supposed to do? Um okay so <laughs> That's a, you know, that's really tough to boil down to like a formula yeah. uh, because if somebody's coming to me, I mean, just to pick two things, if somebody's coming to me uh, because they want to um, automate stage production for Broadway plays versus somebody's coming to me because they want to build an intelligent data collection and, uh, and, visualization of complex data for big um, uh, big legal investigations. It's like worlds apart. They're, they're worlds apart, how you approach it. Um, uh, and, and is your client, uh, is your customer or my, my, my client's customers, are they consumer level people? Are they uh, business level people where they need high efficiency in the system that you're going to provide them versus extremely appealing and engaging. Uh, Cause those are completely different user experiences that you're going to try to create. So really it's, uh, it's a process. And this is, this is where it would be difficult to just have artificial intelligence, be able to do the data collection for you on something like this, because it takes, so there's a lot, there's so much fuzzy logic that goes into this process and experience. Um, uh, so, the, so ha having said that, there are some common patterns uh, uh, that, that do boil out of this. And for example, if we take anybody's business and use, apply a methodology, which I really like called lean stack, or lean, uh, lean canvas, I mean, um, 
or Business Canvas. Business Canvas comes out of ISO 9000, and it helps somebody identify the business of what they're about to go through. And I try to do this with all my clients. Um, so it has a, it's a nine-step process, and you break it down by your potential client. So you do these nine steps for each of your potential clients, and it really helps to expose which direction you should be going with your software first because it's the lowest hanging fruit, it's the least costly to market to, the channels are most exposed, you have the best um, value proposition for that particular client, and now we'll start to make sure that our MVP is more focused on that particular uh, channel or that particular client. So that's one pattern that works pretty much for everybody. And the other one would be that we do, uh, and I've learned why it's so important, we do functional prototypes before we ever write any code. So uh, with all, most companies, they do wireframes, and everybody's familiar with wireframe frame. Uh, the idea that you have all these screens and they're designed, and then you have flows between them, and maybe some click-through capability. But the problem is you don't really know how that app is going to feel or what the user experience is going to be until you have something that really truly represents the finished product and you're clicking through it. Whether it's a mobile app or whether it's on the computer, you, you need to see and expose all the navigation and flows and behavior and animation and all of it. So we go to an elaborate process to build a functional prototype, which is still a fraction of the cost of building the actual app. And in the process of doing that, we always uncover, cha uh, change some of the requirements because we realize that what we thought was going to work doesn't really work very well or doesn't engage the user properly or doesn't expose the right business context for the user so that they're going to use the app properly. And then we change it. And in a prototype, it's dramatically less costly to change it and morph it. And so there's a very iterative process throughout that entire, you know, that entire experience of creating the prototype. And last thing on prototypes is once they have the prototype and then we can start to build it, we get two giant benefits. One, the developers know exactly how the app has to work because it has to match the prototype. Um, so there's no questions in terms of reading a complex spec and hoping that, that, that they represented it correctly in the finished product. And the, the second thing is they have that prototype to take with them now, the client does, to prospective customers. And they can start to demo this to their clients, maybe even pre-sell their product. Um, uh, uh, and, and for sure, they're getting a lot of validation in the process and learning a lot by doing demo after demo. So you get those, those are two huge benefits that you get from doing it this way. Very interesting. Um, I'm a little bit jealous because in AV, I'll just give you a little background. We really don't have the luxury of doing that because all we're doing is building the first car of the assembly line. We're not making a product. We're maybe doing a suite of rooms or maybe even a hundred or a thousand rooms, but it's, it's a limited run. So mm -hmm. what tends to happen is the designers attempt to get everything right out of the gate or we just get an equipment list with a very overview of what the functionality should be and then we run into that problem that you just described where the programmer is trying to decipher how this thing should actually work and this ends up with a lot of unhappy customers there are av has gotten a bad rap over the years 
because I, I, I would blame it on this project flow that we have where we don't do this kind of iterative uh, prototyping and minimum vial products and really testing the systems and going back and updating them. Do you have any tips on how we could maybe approach this better? Yeah, do it. <laughs> I don't see any reason why it's any different. So let's say you're at the end of the day, you've got 10 or 15 pieces of equipment that all have to work um, and they need to all work with some kind of simple um, iPad style panel and maybe a mobile and maybe from a desktop. So mock them up. Uh, so mock them up, create the, then create the functional prototype, and then click through it with the idea that you are um, now on the back side. You have to explain what's happening with the devices, right? So that'll be a little bit harder. But you can you could have a functional prototype on one screen and then a pretend device on another screen. Some that's kind of actually emulator. yeah yeah right and then, yeah like a TV. Well, you know just just basically like a TV screen or some audio device or um, that's rec that's showing that they're recording something or that they're playing something back or that, you know, or that something's being recorded to the cloud or whatever, whatever the particular, I don't see any reason why you, that wouldn't work. And as soon, and you can get to that prototype fairly quickly um, with a lot less effort and then showing it to the client, they may start to feel engaged in the process. Sure. Then they're going to say, let's change this because this isn't going to work exactly. We have this other requirement. Now, you're exposing some of the requirements that were hidden before because, because they're seeing what's missing, which is a lot, is another, which it helps to really pull some of the more refined requirements out that you don't know what they are until you finish the app and you feel, realize you missed the mark. Right. Uh, and then when you deliver it, they know exactly what they're getting. Yeah, there's none of those surprises. I think it's more of a bad habit than anything else. And uh, I have heard of a few companies out there who do take a similar approach. It's just um, more of an exception than the rule. The rule really is, um, yeah, waiting till the last minute to figure out how to do the programming. It's it's uh, kind of a big challenge. So let's say we did take this approach. We've delivered version one. Everybody agreed on how it should work, and and the prototype was accepted, and and everything's programmed. What, what's, what are the next steps after that? So that's kind of our MVP where everything works, but we're not sure if it's really the best it could be. Okay. So you, so you've done, you're talking about the prototype itself, right? So we finished. But even the if, even if, the, even if the, the project is delivered and installed and, and ready for use. Okay. So in your world, it's probably different in this way because, well, let's say that you deliver a product. Most of the time, I'm assuming you're done, right? Unless they say, oh, we forgot this one thing and you have to go back and make that one change. And, but then it's, it's, it's done and you move on to the next project. Is that that's typical? fairly accurate? Yeah. There's usually right. some kind of a grace period. There may be a maintenance contract that will account for some changes, but for the most part, it gets installed and, and you're done. Right. Okay. So in, in, in my world, it's quite a bit different. It's rare. It's rarely that there are cases like that. If I'm doing workflow automation for somebody, the workflow automation is, let's say um, you have a lot of manual tasks related to uh, managing the relationships with your members. If you're a member system and you have 
and you're sending pushing emails out and you have to move data back and forth between these different systems and it's and it's a very time consuming repetitive thing so then we then we'll, we'll do a, a software assembly connecting up things like zapier and um, a, a content relationship manager um, an autoresponder Google spreadsheets, and then maybe write some custom scripts. And when we finish that, then we're finished because we've automated those manual tasks unless they have others that they want us to do. But, but that's done. Mm-hmm. It, when a client comes to me because they want to build a system, especially if it's a startup, we're never done. So in fact, we, I coach my clients, uh, the, on the concept of your budget, you should think of it, it you want to be a successful software company. That's the first thing I ask them. And they, of course, they say yes. Um, say, okay, well, think of your cost as a straight line that goes up to the right at a slant, not a steep slant, but at a slant. But it just goes up forever um, because you will spend more money as time goes on on your software. But your revenue is going to not start until after the first or second release of your software and you're ready to start charging. And then if it's successful, it will curve up steeply in a curved pattern and eventually pass your cost line. That's the mark of a successful company. So if you don't think like that, if you're a new software, if you want to build a software product and you don't realize that once you're done with version one, Uh, you're going to get a lot of feedback and you won't have the budget available to then go make changes to actually capture what market share and to be able to address market needs, Mm -hmm. which you won't know until you actually have a product on the market. So, um, so for, so it's very different in, in my world. And eventually uh, my clients will get to a point where they'll want to then bring their development in-house because it's becoming big enough and critical enough. And so I help them make that transition as well. Um, Sometimes they don't. Sometimes we continue to support them and develop it forever. Uh, But depending on the critical nature of their software, um, uh, usually they'll want to at some point bring it in-house if they're really successful. I I think there are parallels um, and and it it centers around that magic word of of the budget. So Mm -hmm in these kind of nightmare situations that I've been describing that don't always happen, but they happen often enough that it's worth talking about. Um, people kind of think, well, it's just a TV, right? It's just a, a video conferencing system. Why doesn't it just work? Well, my and, wife doesn't think it's just a TV. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but uh, she has an in-house IT administrator, she, right? <laughs> she, think, oh, she thinks it's evil because I'm, I'm not good at what you do. <laughs> You're always tinkering. But if there was like a budget, if these changes were planned for, if you knew there was going to be Rev 1.1 and on and on and on until you're happy, then the whole experience is kind of different. You're expecting those changes. You've budgeted for them. And uh, I, I think it's kind of an interesting idea to treat a custom building project as really a product. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, if you think of it like a product. Well, let's just take any any you know the famous software companies that pop into your head, right? Facebook. They, you know, uh, Zuckerberg's first version, an MVP, took him 30 days to put out. It was very simple, did very little, but but it he could see right away the level of traction he was getting at Harvard and went to 
you know, and immediately started to expand on that. He started hiring people. Yeah, you know, I guarantee you that today Facebook spends as much as just about any company on software development with thousands of developers. So there, if you think of their line going up, it curved upwards their cost line over many years. That's true with any successful software company you can think of. Um, it just because they because if they don't, they will lose uh, market share at some point if they don't keep investing in their software and making it better and more engaging and coming out with new features that people that the market's been telling them that they want. Um, so so that's you know for a software company, that's the product. The product life cycle is you replace it at some point with some completely new system that, that, that subsumes the old one because technology's changed, but you don't, but it doesn't just disappear unless you just don't want to continue to run your company. You stop marketing it, you stop developing it, and eventually your revenue is going to fall off and your customers are going to fall off and they'll go someplace else. Like gravity. Like gravity. So, yeah, then you kind of, there's a few different directions we could take this. You, you, you kind of mentioned that if, if you, you know, there'll be a technological change and then the platform will change. And that's kind of the innovator's dilemma where you have this thing that's working really well, but you know it won't run forever and you'll need to change at some point. I think there's many different levels that you could apply that to, yeah, a career, a software platform, any kind of technology is making that decision of when to change. Yeah, it's um, there's a it's kind of an odd comment. It's a it's a um, you know I don't want anybody to be offended by this, but it's so true. When you develop a product, you have to always be thinking at some point you're going to need to eat your children <laughs> because you're so emotionally invested in the thing you created. It's very hard to stand back and and get a really good perspective on the market and on competitors and on reasons why you may fail in a few years if you don't do something different. And there's lots of examples of companies, not just in software, but in lots of industries that didn't think like that and have have gone away as a result. All the disruption, well, blockbuster. Um, uh, Kodak, Kodak yeah. right? And Kodak's the, the famous one because they owned the digital uh, market. I mean, sure. not the digital market. They owned the film market and everything that had to do with cameras. They own that market. Now they're... They developed the digital camera. Yeah, right. They're, now they're, they're still trying to f- figure out how to become important in that world again. Um, they've made some strides, but I mean, they were gone for a long time. Or... Um, uh, anyway, they're just the world is full of these examples, or all the newspaper companies, the few that are left that have figured out how to how to make it in the digital world. But all the others got bought and you know pretty much disappeared because people don't want paper, you know. But they didn't, they weren't willing to uh, embrace the change, and so instead they got left. So yeah, it's it's hard to know when. Microsoft almost did with the, with, um, what was that called? The browser in the 90s that took off. Netscape. Netscape. Thank you. Not Netscape. Netscape. Uh, then all of a sudden the writing was on the wall, but Bill Gates was smart enough to realize that they had to completely shift 
their direction and become an internet company. And they did like one day, there was one day or one week when Bill Gates announced that they're going to become an internet company and uh, pushed at the time, which was a lot, 800 people into one new group, basically to build Explore and to compete in the new internet world. That was like in 97 or 90, some 98, somewhere around there. But if he hadn't done that, if he had let it go one or two more years, Microsoft might be nothing now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, timing. That's the trick, yeah. right? Yeah. So let's get a little tactical. Do you have any sure. kind of uh, yeah software apps or any go-to tools that you use to kind of go through this this process for yeah prototyping MVP? Yes. Okay. Well, that, so let's start with the with that lean canvas um, uh, modeling. There's a website called Lean Stack, and the guys that built and it's a pretty inexpensive tool, and it's it's web based. And the guys who created that are experts in Lean Stack, and they have videos that tell you how to are in Lean Canvas, and they have videos that walk through all the different steps. So I highly recommend anybody that's doing customer work for startups uh, or for any company that's looking at building something that they're going to start to market, bring them through that process. First of all, it gains you a lot of credibility because it shows that you're really focused on trying to help them be successful. And secondly, they will learn a lot and you'll learn a lot about their business in the process of going through a, a lean canvas exercise, which can take anywhere from, two hours to eight hours or so, depending on how much, how deep you want to go in it and how many different, if you want to go down more than one channel. Um, so that's one tool. The mock-up tools that, that I use, and I've tried a lot of them. There may be some new ones now because it's been a couple years since I've looked that may uh, be alternatives to this, but up till a couple years ago, and even more recently than that, I've not found an alternative that will truly create a functional prototype with all the functionality that I was talking about with the animation in it and behavior and all that. It's called Axure, spelled A-X-U-R-E. And it's more expensive than the other prototyping tools, uh, which shouldn't matter because it's just too important. Um, it's not a fortune, but it's, you know, it's not $10 a month or, you know, or free or what some of the other tools are that are online. It's, uh, it's PC based. I think they have a Mac version too. Uh, but it is powerful what it, what it can do. And there's a quite, there's a decent learning curve to it because you don't code, you use kind of their macro system for doing it. They have great tutorials on how to do everything, but because there's so much you can do in a user interface in terms of how it behaves. I was just working on one now with uh, where um, it's a uh, kind of a drawing tool. It's a type of sales process where uh, somebody can create this type of value system in a graph with bubbles and boxes. And so there's a drag and drop involved and things like that. And so I'm building one like that right now that has a huge visual component and, and a, a kind of a visceral um, GUI component to it because you're dragging it stuff, you're sizing things, you're playing with components that are on a screen, you create new screens, each one has tabs, and this is all just prototyping. So once you're done with a tool like that, does, mm-hmm. it, does it export all the assets that you need to actually build it? 
Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> okay. Because my next question was, does it assume a certain platform, HTML, iOS, Android? It doesn't do, it doesn't do that. I, that's my biggest gripe about it. It would be so nice if it did that. But no, it doesn't. It's, you don't, there's nothing that you get in the prototype that helps you actually build the app. Except, of course, the visualization of what you're building now is very de- as, is as detailed and complete as you want it to be. A clear spec always yeah. makes programming easier. Yeah. And the client has given you feedback that this is what I want. Right. So, and 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 we really take it pretty far. So you click on the submit button, depending on what fields are filled in, or the submit button is grayed out until you filled in the right value, or you know even um, even um, uh, field masking and the messages that you see, all of that is built into this prototype. Because I want there, I want the client to say, "Okay, I this is it." And and the client can be very involved. It's very iterative every day or two, um, uh, going back and forth with the client, and so they feel really involved that they were part of this process to create their product, which makes them a lot happier. So then when you start to build it and deliver that, and it looks exactly like the prototype, it just creates confidence and good relationship and, mm. and all that. But no, it doesn't, it won't generate any assets, unfortunately. Well, where I wanted to take that was the actual building. Once you're ready to build, um, we've had a few conversations already where I've explained to you that in AV, the popular automation systems are very close source proprietary type systems once you're ready to build something, how do you go about choosing the technology to use? Yeah, that has to, well, it depends on the, that. Okay, so let's say I'm going to build a system that's going to have lots of highly related uh, uh, information in terms of data. And, uh, and I need to be able to do lots of reports and filters and things. I might be picking a SQL architecture for the data storage, maybe, because I try to do that less. I, that used to be the only thing I did, but I try to do that less the, because the, some of the newer technologies just create a much faster and more flexible development environment. Um, otherwise, and then the other thing is, how, what's the need for scalability? And that's a whole nother conversation because with almost with almost no exception, I don't say no exception, with almost no exception, that's putting the cart before the horse. People are always so concerned, will this scale? And they say, why, you don't have any customers <laughs> yet. You don't have any idea whether you will have customers. And if you do, you don't know if it's going to like take off quickly or, and if it does, that's a good we'll, problem. Right? It's a great, we want that problem. And we'll make it so that it's at least architected well enough so that we can start to build out the scalability features, right? But don't, don't throw that in our way when we're trying to get an MVP up because all you're doing is driving your costs way up. You're pushing your MVP way farther out. And, uh, and you may find that once you get it out there, it, you actually need a different product yeah. because market's telling you something else. So let's, let's not put that up front as a requirement. Um, but, but that's part of, that would be part of, but I'd still want to pick the right architecture, the tools, like whether it's node and Redis. And so, so here's a good example. Let's say I know I'm going to have, uh, I'm building something that's kind of social and I need, uh, feeds 
you know, that's going to be a big part of it. And I have each person's going to have their own custom feed. Okay, well, now I'm going to use Redis as part of that uh, caching mechanism. And I'll, so I'll build that right from the very beginning so that I can, I can cache everybody's feed into Redis. And then probably in that type of an environment, I might use Elasticsearch even as the database. And then MongoDB is the uh, for profile database data, but not built it around something like Mongo because it's not going to scale very well um, uh, if once we do start to build this out. But I, but I, you know, my architecture initially is going to be simple, but that would be the direction I would be thinking of going. But if it's let's say like I've got a client who's in law enforcement, uh, and we and we built exactly what I was talking about earlier, a system. Um, that collects information from lots of different investigators on big complex investigations that can go on for a year or two and have dozens and sometimes you know hundreds of people involved and the system collects all this information and can correlate uh, and expose relationships because of common phone numbers and common addresses common uh, names and things and wire wire taps that get coded and all this um, so that one we're using SQL Server for because of the need for um, uh, the need for the relation the relational data. Mm. Uh, it just makes more sense in a uh, also because of the security uh, requirements. It's just you know there's a lot more built-in security with those systems, and it makes people it makes those kinds of clients also feel much safer that we're using a. Um, a, a Microsoft SQL database, so it's, it's a blend of a blend of reasons why we Different we went that direction. Yeah. Interesting. Right. So, yeah. how about a hypothetical AV system? You've got uh, maybe a few displays in a room, a video projector, some lifts, uh, video conference system, audio DSP, and some kind of a graphical interface. Maybe some keypads and lighting. Mm -hmm. Okay. So and do and so that graphical interface. I'm going to probably want it to run um, um, on different, maybe on different devices, or is it be one dedicated device that you know what it's going to be? I, you know. Typically, it's one dedicated device. Um, iPads are popular, and there are also proprietary solutions. Right. Um, there, Mimo is a company that makes kind of vanilla touch panels, touch screens for, to build in the wall or sit on, a, on top of a lectern that can run HTML. I mean, it's basically Android. Right. So, if I mean, if it's going to be... Um, uh, if it's going to be um, an iOS device and you know it's going to be iPhone or Android, then um, then I would probably build that as a native app because it just gives me, and I know I don't have a backend, I don't have a web component to it, mm -hmm. then I would build that as a native app because native apps just behave, nothing is as good as a native app in terms of behavior. Uh, uh, if it's going to be, if I'm not sure of the device or the device might change over time, then I might use React Native because I can still build a pretty good native device with React Native, um, building it as kind of a progressive app, but now I'm not tied to my device. Uh, and I only have to build it once and be able to deploy it on different types of devices. So that for the actual user interface component. And then I'd probably use, well, you know, Node is my go-to language at this point because 
It has a really small footprint. It's very fast. It can run on all kinds of devices. It has lots of really good support from library perspective for connecting up with other types of devices. And then I'm already at the limit of my knowledge for <laughs> AV. So you would have to tell me about the rest of the things that you would want to use for that. It, it was interesting. Well, you would need some kind of converters to deal with things like relays or uh, dimming circuits for the lights or whatever kind of equipment you have in there. But um, otherwise, most things are on the network. They do generally have some kind of an API. So it's just a matter of writing drivers. So you could connect up the interface to uh, to the mm -hmm. system. So I, I just uh, wanted to see what you would come up with. I use Node a lot, Node.js quite a mm -hmm. lot. Node-RED was kind of my gateway drug into using Node.js because right. I was able to drag things around the screen. So that would that would be also an issue. What are the APIs like? Um, and what and what support is there for those APIs? Because if there's no Node support that, and I pick Node, that's going, going to be make my life a lot harder. You'd probably have to write your own. I mean, if, yeah. you, if you went on NPM and looked around, you might find something, yeah. but um, there's not like a huge AV community in, in, okay. in, in node land, let's say. Okay. And some okay. of them are pretty cryptic. Some devices use, you know, some long hex string with a checksum at the end that needs to be calculated every time. It could get pretty uh, labor intensive. So those are just some of the things that, that we have to deal with. And it's just looking for, you know, a different take, a different perspective on how to approach mm -hmm. those problems. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I, you know, my focus on that, of course, is how is the whole interaction and then uh, between the devices and, and, and where is my software going to reside? Is it only going to reside on the iPad or is it going to potentially reside in some other places? Am I going, is there an Alexa skill or a, a Google, uh, whatever they call Google skills um, that I need to build? Is there, voice response going to be part of it? Am I going to be using any um, uh, service APIs to enrich the experience for the client? Stuff like that. Very interesting. So I really enjoyed this talk. Do you have any final thoughts for us? The probably the probably the best thing I could say is um, don't assume anything. Don't assume when you think people think that they know what they're building is going to be really successful and the people that are successful have grit and they understand their customer, but they haven't assumed too much and they're open-minded. I'll give you an example of not assuming something but I had, and, and people think that this is not a real story. It's a real story. I'm going to say that right up front. When I had my, um, uh, route logistics, it was targeted originally for vending machines, vendors, vending operators, because my brother-in-law at the time uh, had uh, just got out of the military. He bought 10 vending machines, and then he was asking me about software to try to track it because you go every couple days to service them, you end up with bags of money, uh, of change, and all these bills, and you have all these boxes of of snacks and candy bars and stuff and trying to track that all is really difficult. And when you're a one person operation, you really just care mostly about the money. But as soon as you get a second or third route going and you have people working for you, then you care a lot about the inventory and the equipment, the trucks and everything else and scheduling. And it becomes a, becomes a big problem anyway. So 
we started, so I said, sure, you know, Windows 3.1 was new at the time. And so we built a software product thinking, you know, this is my first software company. It was early 90s. And um, we'll just build this and put an ad out in the tabloid for that industry, which was called Vending Times. And, and that industry is really vending operators and office coffee and snack food distribution and also uh, convenience store snack foods. And, you know, and once you get into any industry, you realize it's much bigger than you, re- than you thought it was. Mm. We thought we'd just put it out there. We'd have an annuity. We'd build it. and We'd have people buying it and monthly and we'd have a yearly maintenance fee and it would be kind of a nice little thing. And of course, you know, that was a fantasy. Uh, because as soon as we started to sell it and people were calling, we had support, all the support issues. And originally I did all the support for the first year until it got to where we had to expand and hire, start to hire people to do this. And then we eventually got an office. We had big staff and like I said, 800 customers in 22 countries and some of these vending operators, office coffee companies had like 150, 200 routes uh, drivers in several states and, you know, it got really big. Uh, but in the early days, a lot of my clients were, were entrepreneurs, husband, wife team. Maybe they had, uh, uh, one route, maybe they had two routes in their town. So I had this woman who is a client and she's in Kansas city and it's January and I get a call like at seven in the evening. Cause that's when she sits down to do all the data entry. And she calls me and she says, um, that the your software broke and i said well what's wrong she says well it's broke and i was like okay open the main window because that's what our when you turned on our product it was um the first window that comes up is called the main window so i said open the main window she says pardon me and i said open open the main window she said okay and i hear this banging around and <laughs> comes back about 20 seconds later. She says, okay, how long do I have to leave that window open? It's really cold out. I think it was like five below in Kansas city at night in January. And I didn't want to embarrass her. <laughs> so I said, okay, five, four, three, two, one. I said, that's probably long enough. I just wanted to cool it down a little bit. <laughs> I was like trying to think really quickly. I said, okay, now grab the mouse. And the mouse is that round white thing with the white wire. That's, she said, I know what a mouse is. Like, <laughs> so, funny. yeah. But, you know, it taught me something. I can't, you cannot assume, can't assume anything. Yeah. Anything, yeah. Exactly. So that's, I'll leave everybody with that story. <laughs> Great stuff. David, if anybody would like to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Uh, they, you could reach me at david at techies.com, techies spelled T-E-K-Y-Z, or feel free to call me. My mobile number is 480-570-8557. I'll say it again, just because I always hear commercials say it twice. 480 five five seven and feel free to call me even for whatever reason just to chat i just as you can tell really like to talk excellent david thank you so much for being on the show okay and thank you patrick i really had fun if you or anyone on your staff ever considered themselves just an av programmer join the club that's how i used to feel i was just an amx programmer just a Crestron programmer, whatever language of your choice is, whatever it may be, there's generally this feeling in AV that we're not capable of using modern programming languages. 
and it simply isn't true. Sure, there's a learning curve, but once you get through it, all other languages become easier to learn and it just expands the amount of options you have when designing a system. It's not an either or decision. You don't say, I won't be using these manufacturer tools anymore. It's just, you have a broader palette to choose from. And here's what Mark Day, founder of Ideabox, had to say about his experience with the online courses at learnavprogramming.com. You know, Patrick, it's funny how the smallest things can sometimes be the start of really big ideas. Uh, before I took the learnavprogramming.com courses, I was in that proprietary, I'm only a control system programmer kind of mindset, right? Uh, when it came to new technologies or current technologies like JavaScript or, or things like that, for some reason, I thought that was different from what I'm doing. And what taking your courses flipped for me was not so much what I learned technically taking the courses. It was the mindset of, oh, wait a second, I'm already doing 99% of what some of these most modern programmers are doing. I just have to learn, uh, you know, the other 1%. And that's really what I did. So it's really been kind of a big change after taking the course. Um, and I would really recommend this course to any integrator. Not only will it obviously help their skill set, but more importantly, it might change their whole mindset uh, which is more important and, and, and really show them new opportunities, open the door so they kind of see problems through a different lens. Uh, I got to tell you, one of the, the biggest changes for me was as soon as I taught myself HTML, CSS, JavaScript and saw the UIs that I can make with those technologies, I, I, I just couldn't sell a uh, Crestron touch panel again. Mark is a great example of somebody who takes new information and really applies it. I know that Mark still sells a lot of Crestron equipment, but for him, for his company, for his customers, for his business, he needed a better UI. He needed another option for a user interface, and modern programming allowed him to do that. So the question is, how can you use modern programming to improve your business? Please go to learnavprogramming.com and wherever you see a sign up button, go ahead and sign up and you'll get some free information to get a feel of my learning style and what kind of information is available. And of course, it would be an honor to have you enroll in one of our courses and help you upgrade your skills and take this industry to the next level. Thanks for listening to Software Defined Survival. I hope you found it useful and maybe it inspires you to try out something new this week. If you have any questions, Go to softwaredefinedsurvival.com and click the appropriate button. I'd love to answer your questions on the air. And if you'd like to help spread the word, please subscribe, comment, and share it with your friends. Thanks.